A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Well, thanks everybody for coming to this the last of our three Two Cultures in Conversation events. Um, I'm delighted to be joined. My name's Neil Denny of Little Atoms, I should say. I'm delighted to be joined by um, Naomi Alderman and Adam Rutherford, who are directly to my right, to your left, if you're looking from the front. Um, what we're going to do is um, Naomi and Adam have both got fantastic books out in the last few months they're both at the back and available to purchase for money as is the last two editions of the little atoms magazine if you're so inclined um i'm going to talk to each of them in turn i think for about 10 minutes about the books um and then we're going to talk about some of the ideas that come out of those books and that will very quickly degenerate into us talking about sci-fi movies which we're all we're all into so i think that's probably where this is going to go if that's your thing um so Naomi, first of all, let's talk about The Power, Hello. Your, your novel. What's it about? Okay, uh, so my, I wish I had a copy to hold up now, but it's at the back with the, with the red cover with the hand on it. Um, the Power is about what happens when all of a sudden almost all the women in the world develop the power to electrocute people at will. <laughs> 
Adam has been enjoying my book. Um, and uh, everything changes. Not It doesn't take too long for a lot of things to be quite different. Um, so it follows four characters. Uh, uh, there's Roxy, who is the daughter of a crime family in London, and she had thought that her three older brothers would inherit, but uh, she starts to get an idea that she might want it instead. Uh, there is um, Tunde, who is a male journalist. That's what we call journalists if they are men. There's journalists and male journalists. <laughs> um, the women in the room understood that joke. It's great. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, he goes. He decides he wants to write a book chronicling the great change in the world, and so he goes travelling and gets himself into trouble. You know, boys getting themselves into trouble when they should just keep themselves nice at home. Um, there is uh, Ali, who is kind of at the start of the book, is uh, living in a foster family and is being abused, and she very rapidly um, deals with that and then goes on to found her own religion. And there is Margot, who is a mayor of a town in New England, and um, she has an idea for how big business could get involved in helping these girls. And we all know how public-private uh, military partnerships work in America. And when I wrote this book, uh, I was so I, was wrote, I wrote it most. I rewrote it actually in 2015. When I wrote it, um, I thought the idea that you might end up with the president of the United States who might really threaten nuclear war um, was a bit far-fetched. <laughs> but uh, uh, unfortunately, events have proved me um, distressingly wrong about that. And um, now it's it's <laughs> it's got a sort of apocalyptic tone to it. That book. Um, because I don't actually think that women are nicer than men and would just be lovely if we could electrocute people at will. I was going to say, the book's also, <laughs> the book's also a bit zeitgeisty in that some of the, I won't say heroes, but some of the people that um, perform like quite important functions in the plot are men's rights activists. Oh, yes. Well, I, I have the benefit... Um, maybe, of having been a woman working in the games industry for the past few years. So whilst the idea of men's rights activists and um, uh, fucking Milo um, might, be, <laughs> might be brand new to many people, to women working in the games industry, this bunch of... Um, loose stool water buckets uh, have been plaguing us for a while. There was a, um, there was a campaign called Gamergate a couple of years ago whilst I was working on the novel, which was basically, um, wouldn't it be nice to harass some women who work in games uh, until they could no longer leave their houses? Um, an amazing thing happened to a woman that I know who works in games where... Um, uh, some some men's rights activists got annoyed with her, so they posted um, adverts on uh, Craigslist around the world, um, or no, around the country, with her home address on it, saying, I have a rape fantasy. Um, I want people to break into my house and uh, rape me, and if I say no, don't stop, because that's my fantasy. Um, so, yeah... It was, it was for the novel, it was a benefit to have been, in, as it were, exposed to some of them. Do you get the sense that your novel's a little bit unrealistic now, that all this stuff really exists in the world? <laughs> I mean, I'm getting the sense that novel didn't go far enough, yeah. man. Just like, yeah, you can't, you can't really go wrong. You can't really um, 
uh, overestimate the horribleness of some people. That is the problem. It only takes a few to make us all frightened. I mean, you mentioned earlier that it isn't like you know, women are much nicer and fluffier and therefore the world will be a better place. If, <laughs> sorry about that, my microphone's... Can you hear me okay? Um, the, the world would be a better place eh? if, micro, if um, microphones worked. <laughs> um, the world would be a better place if you know women were in charge and everything, and that's not how the book pans yeah. out. And you know things actually you know get worse and worse and worse until you know until it ends, which we're obviously not going to talk about how it ends <laughs> with you know something of a of a big event. Mm -hmm. um, but everything that happens in the book is actually something that is really happening somewhere. Yes. Yes, so um, sometimes um, interviewers uh, have said to me, oh, so, th so this is a dystopia. And what I say about it is there is not a single thing that happens to a man in this book that isn't happening to a woman right now, today, somewhere in the world. So um, they, they work out how to do um, a form of uh, penis curbing, which is um, burning out some nerves at the base of the penis uh, so that uh, a man can only get an erection if a woman gives him an electric shock and it will always hurt him to come. Um, and if that is really, really horrifying to you, that is what female genital mutilation does, and that has happened to women living in London right now. So, yeah, if this book is set in a dystopia, then we live in a dystopia. Sorry, that was a, that was a lot suddenly, but um, yeah, people get like I think I think particularly blokes have been a bit horrified reading the book and just sort of look at me as if how could you write these things? I'm like, have you really never maybe thought about? what it might be like to live in a world where there's just casual, constant threats of violence to women as a woman. But I think the answer is no. Like, it's a very different thing to see a gun pointed at somebody else's head and go, oh, that's terrible, than it is when it's pointed at your forehead. That just feels different. Tell us about the electric shock thing. How does it actually work? Ah, so um, I actually did some research uh, in fact, I made a programme for um, Science Stories on Radio 4 about electric eels. And um, a lot of the stuff that I couldn't put into the programme ended up in the novel, because electric eels are amazing. Um, so uh, they have electric eels have an organ, uh, the organ of electricity. Uh, basically, it's, it's um, a set of uh, membranes and some muscle where um, they push certain uh, electro electrons electrons through a semi-permeable membrane and then you release them uh, sort of explosively all in one go and that causes an electric shock. I'm looking at you because you're a scientist. <laughs> you're looking at me for support yeah. and I got no yeah, it's idea. Like sodium ions. Like <laughs> sodium ions? I think it's sodium ions. It's essentially yes. the same thing as in the axons in your brain. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Anyone here know what goes not what goes through a semi-permeable mem membrane in the axons in your brain? Well, I think lots of things, but it could be sodium. Yes, it could be a sodium. Yeah, I think it's Na plus. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so they do that uh, with with their organ of electricity and a discharge. For, if you were to stand in a swimming pool and then and a, a fully charged adult electric eel were to discharge, a full discharge from an electric eel would kill up to five people so yeah like and so so i give women in this book um an organ of electricity across the collarbone um which would make it probably longer and sort of fatter than the ones that electric eels have and so different women have different amounts of electricity which seemed reasonable and uh, but yeah uh, uh you could if the strongest people can kill a bunch of people um and it does all 
basically makes sense how that works. I did enough research that it makes sense. Other things that electric eels can do, um, they can do a form of electrolocation. So they send out um, electric waves, like small pulses into the water, and so they can tell where things are. And they can do a sort of remote control of their prey fish. So if they're looking for uh, a prey fish in... Um, you wouldn't call it undergrowth, underwater, would you? Like like rocks and plants and so on underwater. Uh, they can send out a controlled electric burst which makes their muscles twitch. The prey fish's muscles twitch so they can see where the prey is. And they can do a thing that confuses them so that they think that they are swimming away, but in fact they are swimming towards the mouth of the electric eel. So it's super cool. We don't really even know all the things they can do yet. So the... The the organ that, that starts doing this, the skein, yes. as you call it, is a thing that, it's not just appeared, it's probably been present in these women all the time, but, and it's only loosely speculated about in the book, perhaps some sort of pollution or something has caused this to, to yeah. develop. Yeah, so... Um... Uh, I mean, I, I used a slightly debunked theory called um, the aquatic ape theory, which is, uh, you probably have heard of it. So, so, like, it's a nice theory. There's not a lot of evidence for it, but, you know, it's nice enough for a novel, um, which is that the reason that, for example, human babies are born quite fat and able to swim and with them, it's what's it called, vernix on their skin, sort of waxy substance on their skin. Um, and the reason that we have much less hair than other great apes in our bodies is um, because at one point we went through through an aquatic or a semi-aquatic phase in our evolution where we were either living on a seashore, which is probable, or living in the water, which is much less probable. Um, but uh, much, so less. much, much less, much less. You don't I'm just being very polite. Yeah, you don't, th you don't think there was a point where human beings had gills then? There was, but they weren't human beings then, they were fish. <laughs> you know, it, was about, it was about 450 yeah. million years ago. So, you know, I, I did the thing, I did the disclaimer, I That's said fine. it's basically de debunked, I but got, it's fun. I, I got no problem with it at all. I mean, it yeah. is, aquatic ape is not a good scientific no. idea. In no. fact, it's not even a singular scientific <laughs> idea. I can but talk about aquatic ape all night yeah, if you want. Yeah, but it's cute, it's cute. But no, know. we're not going to do that. But what yeah. I, wanna, I do want you to talk about, though, perhaps yeah. for a moment... You talk about something. Um, ...is... Epigenetics, oh. because this is—is is this not epigenetics? Oh yes, do talk about it. Oh, must I? Must I? Well, go on and ask me a question. Well, go on. Is this not some some form of epigenetics? Something that's that's dormant that gets sort of like reawakened by by sort of external stimulus? Well, sort of. Yeah. I mean, well, who's familiar with what epigenetics means? Okay. So, so it's it's a. You can oh. read a piece about epigenetics in issue well, shall two. We, shall we pause while everyone does that? <laughs> about ten minutes. Yeah, we'll have ten minutes of silent um, reading. So, <laughs> epigenetics is the phenomenon in biology which is literally the, the modification of DNA because your DNA over one's life does not change. Um, the DNA that you're born with is the DNA that you'll die with, with minor modifications uh, according to, you know, mutations if you get things like cancer but epigenetics is one of the mechanisms by which your dna is expressed differentially across you know, from conception to death um, and it's, it's one of a variety of mechanisms by which your genes are modified so they're expressed at the right time and place because we start as a single cell 
Um, and after a few hours, we're multiple cells which are mostly identical to each other. But by the time you're born, you consist of trillions of cells which are uh, with hundreds of different cell types. Now, epigenetics is one of the mechanisms by which those cells get turned into the difference between a cell in the retina and some bone or a blood cell or, or whatever. The, the reason I roll my eyes when epigenetics comes up is because it's become enormously fashionable in the last few years to talk about epigenetics as if it was something both revolutionary and new. And it's neither of those things. It's a very interesting and not insignificant part of normal biology. But it isn't revolutionary and it isn't new and it isn't unique. It's one of many mechanisms by which um, what I've just described, how, how genes are turned on and off, is one, one of many mechanisms that exist to, to do that. But, you know, science is, it, it is prone to fashions, massively prone to fashions, not just in the popular press, how we talk about new discoveries, but also um, in terms of how grants are funded. What, what, is, what is popular attracts more grants. And, and I don't think epigenetics is not important. I just don't think it's that interesting. <laughs> I think it Fair sounds enough. amazingly interesting. I think you should do a whole book on it. Oh, well, there's a chapter in my book <laughs> at the back yeah. about, about yeah. that. Reasonably priced at the back of the room. Well, before we get to Adam's book, just one more thing about about the power. And Naomi, I can remember when we when we talked years ago about your book, The Liar's Gospel, another amazing novel by Naomi, which you should also get. Thank you so much. Um, that was a historical novel mm -hmm. about a imagined life of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And obviously that involved like a you know a hell of amount of research before you got anywhere near actually writing the book. Mm -hmm. So beyond obviously researching the things like the electric eels, how do you go about researching a speculative novel? Ah, yeah, actually you can. Okay, so um, I read a lot of stuff about organised crime, which is really interesting because it seemed to me that, um, I mean, my thesis, I know a novel is not supposed to have a thesis, but my novels always do have theses. And um, it seems like they've done all right and people like them, so I feel like it's okay that I start off with a theme usually rather than starting off with characters. Anyway, that's just my own insecurity talking about how a, how a real writer would write. Um, so, uh, yeah, so, so my thesis is um, that the capacity for violence and the capacity to cause pain is what um, lies at the root of the lot, a lot of the gender differences that we see in the world. And so I thought hard about where in the world the capacity for violence translates most quickly into other forms of power. So power is fungible. You can turn some kind, different kinds of power into other different kinds of power. You can turn money into political power, uh, as, as apparently in the American election. Um, you, can, you, you, can turn, you can turn political power into religious power. You can turn religious power into um, uh, 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 like control over media. You, know, they, they, you, can, you can use one to get another. Um, and, and it seemed to me that starting out with crime is a good place where the capacity to hurt someone really a lot uh, easily turns into cash, um, which can then be turned into almost anything else. So, I, yeah, so I read... Uh, Misha Glennie's written some brilliant books about uh, organised crime, particularly in Eastern Europe, and how how that works, actually. And it's brilliant. There's, I can't remember the name of the book, but it's Misha Glennie's book about organised crime in Eastern Europe is uh, talks about actually how the oligarchs became that rich, which is basically the Soviet Union collapsed not in an orderly way, but in bits. So um, there might still be a bit which was 
allowing people, allowing a certain company to buy oil from the state regulators at fixed prices, but then the other bit, which was selling it onto the open market, was totally not state controlled anymore. So you could buy it at a very low price from the government and sell it at whatever was the market price. And that is how a bunch of people became extraordinarily wealthy. And there's various other things like that going on. It's amazing. Um, so yes, I um, I also, that you know, in, in a certain way, history can be quite useful. So knowing what tends to happen in revolutions and wars, um, I mean, I remember in the Arab Spring, there was this sort of, like there were people talking about it, going, oh, this is amazing, this is wonderful. Look what's happened in Egypt. They've toppled their government and the military have taken over. And there was a kind of moment of like excitement. And I, having read a lot of history in my time, was looking at this going, is this something that we're pleased about when a military hunter takes over? I don't, I'd like, does, does, that, does that usually work out okay? Um, maybe it's better than the previous thing, may, maybe not. Um, the more history you read, the more you know about the really terrible things people do to each other. Um, I mean, if you really want to read something much worse than anything I have written, go and get a book about what happened in the Belgian Congo. Like, you know, at that point, you just, you know, the idea that there will be things that are unimaginable that people could do to each other. No, there's nothing. Um, and, and also, I guess, uh, my whole life has been a research for um, writing about invented religions. I grew up a very orthodox Jew, and I remain fascinated by weird religions. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot more to go into there, but we are going to move on. As a, as a former orthodox Jew, are you allowed to describe Ju orthodox Judaism as a weird religion? I've got an arrangement with God. <laughs> I don't bother him. He doesn't bother me. It's oh, I'm not going to argue with that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Adam, a brief history of everyone who ever lived. People will be delighted to know that it's not ten foot tall with a little paragraph about literally everybody who ever lived. What is the idea? No, well, there is a small caveat in there. I mean, it's not an A to Z. I have had complaints from people, including on Amazon. <laughs> Where am they... I? I'm not mentioned. <laughs> I went through the index and I'm not in there. <laughs> it's not a phone book, dude. Um, no, but the, the, the premise is that it is, it's a history book. So it's, 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 you know, it's great that we're talking about history books because I, I, as a geneticist, as a scientist, spent a lot of the last few years reading history, which is new for me, well, since GCSE history. Um, but the, the premise is that in the last few years, sort of 10 years maximum, but really only the last five or six years, uh, DNA has been added to the, um, uh, the, the set of historical tools, of sources that historians can use to reinterpret the past. And it has been in, in several fields within history, uh, and I include prehistory and paleoanthropology and anthropology within that. Some of these areas have been utterly revolutionized, completely transformed by the addition of DNA um, to, to these more traditional forms of understanding the past. Other areas have, have, have verified what we already knew, others have challenged. Um, and so, so that's the idea. It is, it is, it's, it's a history book where DNA is the source. So one of the things that you challenged right at the beginning, everybody in this room, even if they didn't study science at a particularly high level, will be familiar with a guy called Rudolf Zallinger's 
the diagram called the March of Progress, which I have, I probably should have done a slide, but I've reproduced here. It looks like this. <laughs> um, now, beyond the obvious of the version that I've reproduced, Adam, what's, what's up with this? Well, the, the, the one you're holding there has Homer Simpson in, 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 in various monkey-like forms before he becomes the final Homer Simpson. Um, Everyone's familiar with this, this, this image where you have sort of s small lemur-type, monkey-type things um, on the uh, left-hand side, and they gradually become bigger and more upright and eventually end up in a, um, the, the, the ultimate form of Homo sapiens, which is a white-bearded man <laughs> ca carrying a spear. All right. A mediocre white man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 also, and also they've all got their right legs... <laughs> in front of their left legs right. so you can't see their genitals <laughs> as well. Which, which, as I say in the book, is a slightly, you know, given that this whole idea is about the, the transmission of biological information from one generation to the next over uh, um, evolutionary time, being prudish about your cock and balls is possibly not the most progressive way to think scientifically. Anyway, there's, i got two issues with, with, with it. One, one is that it implies, well, it suggests that there is direction to our evolution mm. and that the ultimate form of uh, in our evolutionary traje trajectory is both homo sapiens and a white bearded man with a spear now there this is apart from being um politically peculiar uh, it's just scientifically illiterate that mm. there is no direction to evolution in any form it takes. We are no humans are no more or less advanced than any organism that exists. We don't talk about higher or lower organisms these days because you know we we've existed for a much shorter period of time in our current form than well, pretty much all other organisms on Earth and the organisms that have lasted the longest and will outlast us, outnumber us, and outmass us, outweigh us, are bacteria. Um, they are the dominant forms of life on Earth. So, so the first problem is that there is no direction to, to evolution. We are simply the product of time and chance. Um, the, the, second, the second issue I have with it is a more scientific um, problem, which is that as a result of looking at DNA and using DNA, particularly ancient DNA that has been retrieved from bones that have been um, uh, in the ground or in caves for tens of thousands of years now, we now have really no picture, no cohesive structure to human evolution. Mm -hmm. And when we were growing up, we had these nice branching trees which said that there was Homo erectus here and there was Australopithecus here and... Homo heidelbergensis, and there's a, you know this led to Homo neanderthalensis, and blah blah blah, and that just we there's no picture now. Um, we we now know that I mean I, I I fondly describe this as a sort of million year clusterfuck, because what the DNA says is for the last few hundred thousands of years, what we used to call separate species like Homo sapiens. Homo neanderthalensis, and now we've discovered a couple of new species which, for which we have either no or very few bones. Um, interbreeding was it occurs on many occasions between those at least those four species. So you know. What are the others? What are the other two? Well, the, so one one is a, a character called the Denisovans, mm -hmm. and we have a bone. Uh, sorry, a, a single molar and the fingertip bone from a juvenile female. Yeah. Now, that's not enough to categorise a species which is done morphologically, historically. Literally just one tooth and the fingertip. Yeah, from a, from a teenage girl. 
Um, but it was enough to get the, the full genome out of. Mm -hmm. And this was 2010 and 11. And by getting the full genome, you then compare it to uh, Homo sapiens, our own DNA. And it's two different, it's more different it's too different for it to be considered the same species. Mm -hmm. The same happens with Homo neanderthalensis. Well, you can find DNA from that in humans. But you can find DNA from the Denisovans in humans, especially the further east you go. Right. So the, the only samples we have for Denisovans are uh, in Siberia, mm -hmm. in Dennis's cave, in fact. So that's where the Denisovan names come. He was a... Uh, um, a bloke who had a cave. He was a hermit, yeah. <laughs> an eremite who lived in, in, in a cave for a few years in the 19th century, and, and now he's got a whole species named after him. It's funny how these things pan out. That's not what he wanted, he just wanted a quiet life. Yeah, he wanted to, yeah, to just to be left alone. Although, weirdly, that's precisely where Neanderthal's name come from as well. So uh, Joachim Neander changed his name from uh, Neumann, mm -hmm. which means new man. Yeah. He changed it to Neander, which means... New man, but in Greek. <laughs> right. And then he went and hid in a cave in the Neander Valley outside Dusseldorf. Do I mean Dusseldorf? Yes, Dusseldorf. Yeah. yeah. And he That's hid the there to, to contemplate and to, to be religious. And that was the site of the first Neanderthal but bones But it wasn't discovered. these hermits who found those bones. No, both the hermit stories are completely irrelevant to, to, the, to the science. <laughs> I just but think I there's suppose. a nice parallel. Yeah, I mean, I suppose... OK, I've got a theory for you here. I suppose if you are a hermit looking for a lovely cave, yeah. you might pick a cave that humans or, or human-like species have previously looked at and gone, oh, this is lovely. Yeah, he's picked Let's... a good cave. Yeah. yeah. He has. No, in both, I think that's very yeah. good. I don't know anything about the, um, the, the Dusseldorf cave, Neander's cave, because it was destroyed yeah. in the 19th century by miners and re-excavated where they found bones subsequently, but it doesn't exist anymore. But the Denisovas, Dennis's cave is... Um, why are we talking about caves? I'm asking you about caves. <laughs> the Denisova <laughs> cave still exists and, yeah. and has been occupied by thousands of species wow. for thousands of years. It's really nice. It's a right. nice cave. I yeah. mean, it's got, it's got a, um, it's got a sort of riverfront yeah. view. Oh, is it, you put it on right move and you... <laughs> Listen, I'm not just plugging the book here, but I describe it using the language of estate agents. Oh, <laughs> in, in the book, it has a spacious central cabin yeah. with several side rooms and a, and a working chimney. I mean, it's, it, that's it, obvious. It's yeah. absolutely ideal for your 19th century eremites. It's absolutely ideal for you to go in there, lose the tip of your finger, and a molar. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, yeah, fifty thousand years ago. Yeah, yeah. If you so okay, so there's so there's Neanderthals, Denisovans, and what's the other one? Well, see, right now this is where it gets really, really bizarrely. This is a child. No, no, no. no that's that's much older. Okay. Um, it gets really bizarre. It's almost really exciting yeah. for your average geneticist. I am now, quite excited. Because we have literally no bones for this what? organism. So this, if you compare the DNA from a Neanderthal, Homo sapiens and the Denisovans, they are, we can see interbreeding between Denisovans and Neanderthals, Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, Homo sapiens and Denisovans. Basically right. a three-way, mm -hmm. right? Yep. Not yep. at the same time. Do you know um, that? We don't know that. <laughs> <laughs> but what a time been. to be alive. <laughs> um, honestly, we weren't fussy back back in the day. Um, We're not fussy now. But you see different <laughs> you see different distributions of those different types of DNA across the world. So Neanderthals were primarily European with a slight bit of Eurasian. So the further the, the, the more white and European you are, the more uh, Neanderthal DNA you'll have in you, mm -hmm. and the, the further East Asian you are, the more um, Denisovan DNA you'll have in you. There was very little what's referred to as backflow 
of both Denisovan and Neanderthal DNA back into Africa, <laughs> although there is some, right? What was the question? Uh, what's the third one? Right. Oh, the third. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Fourth, fourth. So, so you then you then compare those those four, and the differences between them don't add up, huh. right? So there's a missing contribution that injected DNA, you know, euphemistically, yeah. contributed we DNA. All, we're all adults here. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're called gene flow events, <laughs> which I think is one of those brilliant <laughs> euphemisms. <laughs> um, but, so there were gene flow, there were clearly gene flow events between something that for which we have, we have no DNA, we have no physical remains. It may be one of the other, one of the fossils that we know exists but haven't got DNA from. Mm. But there is a phantom species that we carry in our DNA that we don't know what it was. What do we call it? Uh, it doesn't have a name. <sighs> you could name it. Phantom species. <laughs> Can we not name it after somebody that lives in a cave, yeah. though? <laughs> Homo phantomus. Yeah. yeah. That's so, very exciting. <clears throat> yeah, so eventually are we going to be able to like recreate that species? Well, it's a very... Uh, like Jurassic Park. Yeah, yeah it's a, people have suggested this seriously. The resurrection species is, is a, a little bit like epigenetics, mm. and uh, uh, not unfashionable. It's something that people talk about a lot because it's so attractive as a sort of sci-fi idea. Yeah. It's, uh, I think it's so, so far from being possible... Um, that's I think I, bollocks is the term you're looking for. Isn't it? <laughs> it's not bollocks, though, is it? It's just very, very difficult, and well, we haven't okay, got the tech I mean, there's, for a, it. there's a couple of issues, right? So it's much. It, it's, I think it's likely that in the next few years we will recreate, we, we will bring back a species that maybe died in the 20th century. I like the quagga. Is that how exactly you say it? Exactly. Yeah. I don't know. No, I've written it, but never actually yeah. said it. Anyone know how to pronounce it? Of course, that? they're all dead, so you quagga. can't ask them. It, it yeah. is quagga. <laughs> Or the Thysalanimus? Yeah, the cat, the big cat. Right. Yeah. Now, because they're recently dead and we have good DNA for them and we understand where they fit in, in, um, in evolutionary species um, terms, we've probably got good models for doing what needs to be done, which is taking a cell from an existing species, synthesizing the DNA from the extinct species, getting the DNA into the cell of the existing species, then getting that into a pregnant female and letting that to develop to term. Now, people have seriously talked about doing this with mammoths because we have a really wow. de decent quality mammoth. We're going to save the game before we do that, though, right? Well, this is kind of the point because what do you what do you get as a result? I mean, apart from the fact that you've got a female elephant giving birth to um, a different species, it's really cool. It's not really cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. I mean, we don't we don't we don't even know how big. A, a mammoth would be at birth. Oh. Okay, so having, having said all oh. this... Having, that sounds like a poor lady elephant there, having a nasty time. <laughs> yeah. And you'd be really confused, and also when the, when the creature is born, it's a bit lost, right? What is my identity as a creature? Yeah, it's got nothing else it can mate with. You've only got one. Yeah, it's, but then life that, is pointless. That's an argument for making a hundred. <laughs> that's not an argument for not doing it. Yeah. That's just, yeah, we that's... don't know its environment, we don't know what it's fed on, and, and it becomes a boutique species. It becomes something that can only exist in zoos. Yeah. However, having had this conversation on weirdly on... Irish radio a couple of years ago when the mammoth genome was published I found my I come from a Catholic family and I, I, I was on in a discussion with a priest and there was a point where during the discussion I found myself describing the vaginal tracts of an elephant amazing and being quite confused that this was happening live on on radio 
and also being quite confused that I knew so much about the vaginal tract of an elephant. Because it turns out that um, a, a, your average female elephant has a, about a seven-foot vagina, mm-hmm. which, which has a two, which has a right angle, two-foot. A foot right bend angle. And the male, the the, the elephant penis <laughs> has a prehensile penis, so it's a, oh, it can wow. negotiate the. Wow! Bends. But then, how does the baby elephant get out? Okay, well, so then yeah. they've got they've got a, a sort of a, like a hymen. T- this isn't what we came here to talk no, about. No, but it's great. People are looking at it. This is good stuff. So yeah. there's a, there's a, listen, listen, we can't just talk about genetics, which we obviously knew was be talking about sex. Continue. So then there's, the, then there's this sort of enormous membranous sheet, which has a tiny pinprick hole in it, which is also part of the, 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 the difficulty, the, the evolutionarily designed difficulty in getting a sperm through it. Yeah. You know, Vaginas are designed to make getting pregnant as hard as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you've, got to, you've got to have a prehensile penis, uh, which is seven feet long with a bend in it, and then you've got to be able to negotiate it through this two-millimetre-wide hole. All right, I'm with you so far. <laughs> <laughs> so we know this because artificial insemination has been done in elephants, and so understanding the elephant vaginal tract is, is, is important. <laughs> Um, you were saying how, how a baby elephant gets out and then you're going to go on to mammoths. Oh, can't we just talk about something? <laughs> Come on. How does the lady elephant give birth? Um, well, through the, by, the, by the natural but like, way. But, like, there's the, there's, are there some muscles that, that help it round the corner? Do you know what? Having had this conversation on national, radio, national Irish radio with a priest, I've, I've realised I'm well past the limit of my understanding of this subject. <laughs> I just God did eyes. Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay, let's move on from... <laughs> None of that is in my book. <laughs> but, but, but I'm clearly researching a new novel. <laughs> this is what let's, let's move the conversation on from massive elephant vaginas. Not that far. <laughs> Um, to TV's own Danny Dyer for a moment. <laughs> um, <laughs> people in the audience may be familiar with... Prehensile penis. <laughs> seven foot long, apparently. <laughs> people may, in the audience may be familiar with um, the aforementioned Danny Dyer's recent appearance on the, um, the programme Who Do You Think You Are? Is that what it's called? Yeah. 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 What um, do you think it's called? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that one. That's it. What it, the program? What do you think it's called? Where it turns out, amazingly, amazingly, Danny Dyer is related both to Thomas Cromwell and Edward the Third, yeah. the former King yeah. of England. Danny Dyer. That's yeah. amazing, right? It was a brilliant program. It was some of the best TV I've seen in a, in a while. I don't watch much TV. Um, but yeah, during the course of this hour-long program, you know that you're familiar with the formats. They they take a. Um, a B-list celebrity, um, and uh, do traditional genealogy and ancestry and trace a line in their ancestry and, and find out that inevitably they were descended from either a duke or a duchess or a scullery maid. There seemed to be a lot of scullery maids mm. in people's ancestry. Those sculleries didn't clean themselves. And they didn't. No. But Danny Dyer, who is, I, I understand is the current landlord of the Queen Vic in EastEnders, and he did some quite good films when he was young, and then he did a lot of bad films after that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you know, he's, he's a sort of professional Cockney wanker. And um, <laughs> uh, Anyway, it has this brilliant scene at the end. Spoiler alert, I don't care. It's got this brilliant scene at the end when the, the genealogists reveal on this scroll, this rolled-out family tree, that he's 21 generations directly from Edward III, the, the, the first Plantagenet king, you know, this is really significant. That really is amazing. What are the chances? It's well, amazing. it turns out that the chances are 100%. Oh, okay. Um, 
because <laughs> thank you for queuing that up for me. <laughs> um, because of the way that family trees actually work, um, which is uh, de detailed in the book, but basically. You, we, we think about our family trees in very linear ways, and when we trace our ancestry, we tend to only focus on the, the interesting people and the people for whom there, are, uh, there is a paper trail, so mm -hmm. people with, with, you know, you can get family records for. Now, of course, in the past, the, you, the, the, the further you go back in the past, the less likely you are to be someone who has left a physical mark on the mm -hmm. earth, unless you're a royal. Mm -hmm. And so the, the royal family trees are the ones that we have in immense detail, going back for not just to, to the 13th century, but for thousands of years. Now, there's a conundrum within family trees, which is that everyone has two parents uh, and four grandparents and eight great-grandparents and so on. So every generation... Unless there was a cousin marriage involved in there. That is true, but I do account for this oh, in the maths okay. when, I do, right. when I do the maths. Right. Um, Continue. So... Um, <laughs> No, you still, you still have the same number of ancestors. It's just that they get crammed into fewer people. And that's really mm, the point. Okay. So there are more that's people alive today than there have ever been alive at any single point in history. Yep. That, that, that's not the same as the myth yep. that there are more people alive now than have ever lived. Mm -hmm. about a about, depending on when you start counting, there's been about 107 billion people on Earth, and there are currently obviously about 7 billion. So if you take one individual, the further back in time you go up their family tree, the more ancestors they have to have. But the conundrum is that any time in the past, there have been fewer people alive than there are today. Mm -hmm. So both of those statements are true. So what you have to do is you have to cram all of your ancestors into fewer people, which means that after a few generations, individuals start occupying multiple places in your family tree. right? And this is effectively what we call inbreeding. But after a while... Um, you get what's known as pedigree collapse, which is the point at which all your branches of your family tree begin to coalesce and fewer and fewer individuals. Now, there is a thing called the... Uh, well, it's not, I, I like to do this with audiences if you haven't read the book. So the last... we we'll do it just for Europeans because that's where the data is best, well, is, is best known. So the last common ancestor of all Europeans is... You have read the book. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. It's not Charlemagne, but it's it's um, a roundabout. You're looking for a day. It's five hundred about five hundred years ago, probably somewhere in Germany. There is literally an individual. We don't know who this person was, but the maths declares that there is literally an individual through whom all white people's family trees flow at least once. All right. So that's the last common ancestor. I'm going to do this face at you. Okay. Okay. Um, so I, I got my I got my I got my DNA analysed, but but maybe I just don't count as a white person. Um, I got my DNA analysed because I'm Jewish. So like um, I got my DNA analysed by um, uh, that 23andMe. Huh. And so all three of us on this stage have done that. Ah, I oh. was going to talk about that earlier. Yeah. Oh, but sorry. I'll yeah. over that, but um, we can now. And and you know I like I'm, I come from an Orthodox Jewish family, and as as mentioned, and I was like you know hoping for something super exciting like oh look you know here you've got ancestors from somewhere unexpected, and what I came out with, <laughs> it's 98% Ashkenazi Jew, 1% uh, <laughs> Sephardi Jew, and very excitingly 1% East Asian. So I've got something. I've got something there to go. So there was some there was some probably Mongol horde or something, um, or somebody was a traitor with Kazakhs or anyway yeah. but so 
it, this cannot be for me, right? That there's that common ancestor. It has. There's no such thing as Jewish DNA. What? Yeah. <laughs> what? On that bombshell. What? Yeah. What? what? For exactly these reasons. Yeah. Because as soon as you get to a point where the where you have a most recent common ancestor as an individual, the next interesting genetic point after that, or what before that chronologically, is called the ISA point, and the ISA point is where all lines of all family trees cross through all individuals. Okay, I know that, yes, that face. Yeah, it's really complicated. That, that is the right face. But basically, you can describe it in, in, in the reverse way, which is there is a time in history where um, all the people alive are either the ancestors of everyone alive today or no one alive today. Okay. Okay? So that number comes out for Europeans as the 10th century. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if you were alive in the 10th century and you have descendants who are alive today, then you were the ancestor of literally everyone who is alive today. But what about... But this is like... going back to why it's not so surprising that Danny Dyer is related to... to yeah, let, me, let me quick... Because basically we all are. Yeah, so let me, let me finish off the Danny Dyer story quickly and then we'll talk yeah, about yeah. the more interesting stuff. So he discovers that he's the 20, 23 generation, whatever it was, 23 generations directly from Edward III, which is factually true, and he can demonstrate this because they've got the family trees to prove it. I did the, I, I did the calculation and I and I checked it with um, a colleague of mine at UCL. And um, the way I did the calculation is, because it's a royal family tree, you can actually count the number of descendants that Edward III has for about three, three or four generations. And he was unusually fecund. <laughs> so he had a lot, of, a lot of descendants. And by the time you get to great-grandchildren, he's up to about 245, which is, which is not totally weird, but it's, but it's, it's decent enough. Um, and then, and then they begin to felt. Then you begin to lose track of people um, because there are just too many. Um, but if you take a simple calculation, which is that on average people who reproduced at that time would have two children, then by the time you get to 1600, then the number of direct descendants of Edward III is around about 20,000. Okay, again, it's a big number, but it's totally plausible. <laughs> then you work backwards, right? So you work backwards from 1975, which is the year that Danny Dyer was born, I think. And assuming a generational time of about 25 or 27 years, you count up the number of ancestors that one should have going that far back in time. And it comes out as, I think, 16,000 off the top of my head. And then the, the population of Britain at this time was about 4.8 million. And then you sort of divide these numbers into each other. I mean, it's not much more complicated than, than that. And what the number you come up with is that everyone who was born in 1975 should have a maximum number of 118 ancestors who were directly descended from Edward III. And, and even if you're out by two factor, two, two orders of magnitude, 100, you should still have eight. Mm -hmm. Okay? <laughs> so basically, the chances of you, any, again, sort of ethnically white British person not being descended from Ed, Edward III are, I, I, I can't remember the exact number, but it was like, P is less significant than, you know, it's like 98th percentile. Basically, the chances are almost all of you are descended from Edward III. <laughs> and, and all of you are descended from Charlemagne, because that, that you go back a further 400 years, and the genetic ISO point has, has occurred. But, the but we wouldn't all be descended from Char Charlemagne if, for example, we were indigenous Australian people. No, that's true. This is specifically for Europe, and the further from this... this um, uh, from Europe you go, the more distant it is. However, however, yeah, yeah, yeah. the genetic isopoint for everyone on Earth yeah. is about 
three and a half thousand years ago. So long after the end of the last ice age. Ramesses the second, we're talking here. That is that is not that long ago. No, it's well that? into the Old Testament. Yeah. It's well into his it's halfway through history. Yeah. Uh, everyone alive yeah. in about people had agriculture, they were making alcohol by that oh, point. Yeah, they were doing we had pyramids. Also. Yeah. We, we had yeah. pretty sophisticated. Yeah, culture. there was money, there was writing. Yeah, and there's yeah. no one on earth alive today who is not descended from exactly the same people three and a half. Uh, about 1400 BC. So you're right to point out that Charlemagne is on, only works for most of Europe. You know, sometimes people of East Asian descent say, I, my ancestor was Genghis Khan. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Because every, everyone west of the yeah. steps I mean, I figure if, if I've got 1% East Asian, I've got some Genghis Khan, which I yeah. can feel in myself. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. But <laughs> the point about your Jewishness yeah. is that... Um, my fake Jewishness. <laughs> It's not, it's not fake. It's just that what we're talking about here is the, is the proportion of DNA which is common in different self-identifying ethnic groups. Now, Ash, Ashkenaziism is a sort of um, medieval... Uh, emerges as a medieval phenomenon within Judaism. And it accounts for about two-thirds of Jews the world over. Yep. Now, there is no group of people on Earth who have managed to keep it within their own group... <laughs> for any length of time, any significant length of time. The, 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 the highest is probably the Saracens. Huh. So the Saracens who live on a mountain in... Yeah, um, that'll do it. Yeah, but they've had to start outbreeding because they're so inbred that yeah. they can't reproduce. Uh. So not even then. There are no islands in the South Pacific where there hasn't been gene flow from external parties. India's quite interesting because they've, they've been... Um, Indians have been uh, practising caste for about two or 3,000 years now. And that is uh, a class structure which does... Uh, endogamy is the term for it, where you are breeding only within a social structure. And we do see certain genetic traits emerging within castes and not in other castes. But still, pe chapter one of the book is called Horny and Mobile. Yeah. Because, <laughs> because that's what people are, yeah. right? No one can keep it together for more than a few generations. So, you know, my, um, my, my stepmom. Um, was her father was um, an orphan raised by the Sisters of Mercy in Liverpool, not not the band, because <laughs> <laughs> that would have been awesome. <laughs> no, no, by some Sisters of Mercy <laughs> in Liverpool, and we didn't know much about about his his father, apart from his name, and Liverpool being a port town, he was called John Adams. And, um, and then when we started looking a couple of years ago, he wasn't called John Adams. He was called Joseph Abrahamson. Uh, and he was an Orthodox yeah, Russian Jew. Yeah. Right. <laughs> now, the casualness with, what, with which people can abandon mm. decades or hundreds of years of ancestry, just gone yeah. like, like that. And in fact, there are, there, um, there are thousands of examples of Jewish people in this country who have names like... K, K-A-Y, and G, G-E, and Cohen, mm -hmm. who were called those things because, well, in the first two examples, because immigration officials couldn't spell mm -hmm. um, Koplinsky or something, be, something beginning with yeah. G, yeah, <laughs> or because Cohen, well, you're Jewish, you're probably called Cohen. Mm -hmm. I actually had, had a brilliant moment of, it's not mansplaining if you're talking to another man, is it? It's just <laughs> patronising. Yeah. <laughs> a, fr a friend of mine called Cohen, Andrew Cohen, and, and I said, so, so you're a Cohen, and he, uh, um, and he said, well, um, no, and I said, well, if you're a Cohen, you're directly you're descended Cohen, yeah. from the Cohenim. 
yeah. you know, the, 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 the paternal branch of high Jewish priests. And he went, no. And I said, yes. <laughs> and he said, no. We were given the name Cohen in the 19th century oh. because my Czechoslovakian ancestors had a complicated name that no one knew. That's really funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so when I did the 23 and Me, and they obviously, not having read my novels, nonetheless were able to detect through my spit sample that I am an Ashkenazi Jew, yeah. um, they were doing that because my sample is very similar to a lot of other people who also call themselves Ashkenazi Jews. That's right. Yeah. So there isn't a way, there is no scientific method for determining where people's ancestors come from. Yeah. using DNA. That doesn't exist. And these tests, which we've all had done, and I expect some of you have had them done as well, are interesting. I think they're quite trivial. I don't think they really tell you anything profound. They're a sort profound. of posh, ex uh, expensive version of a horoscope. Um, we, <laughs> I, I'm not going to say specifically about specific companies, but I describe them as genetic astrology yeah. in the book. Um, and some are better than but others. But they are really fun. And 23andMe, I think, is a credible company. I mm -hmm. think Ancestry.com is a, is a credible company, others less so. But like I said, there isn't a scientific <laughs> method, for, bless you, for Thank telling you. you where your DNA comes from in the past. What they tell you is where people on Earth today have similar DNA to you. So uh, to, be, to, to be reducto ad absurdum, if, uh, so, uh, it, it, like... A, 2% of my DNA came, says, according to my map, comes from Sweden, mm -hmm. right? Now, being, having a parent who is Northern European, that's hardly surprising. It could be that everyone in Sweden moved there on January the 16th, 1975, <sighs> and that is where, the day I was born, and that is where that DNA comes from. It could be that they'd been there and they hadn't moved for the last 10,000 years. It's not. Everyone wants to discover that they're actually Viking. <laughs> right, you are. You're up. You're Viking. You have a, you have Viking ancestors. That'll be 160 pounds, please. You have Jewish ancestors. You have Jewish and Viking and Saracen and French and Norwegian and African and probably Chinese ancestors. That's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is. It's super cool. It's also just. I. It's just kind of like trivial. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I know it is true that there's no such thing really as Jewish genes in the sense that um, when you go to India, there are Indian Jews who, you know, uh, appear Indian. And so it's not like, oh, look, these are people who have, you know, just there's just been like intermarriage between us. You know, and that's the case with Jewish populations all over the world. Um, gosh, it's very easy to stray into sound, saying something that sounds a bit racist. Welcome to my world. Yeah, I can, <laughs> I can only apologise if that just sounded a bit racist. Um, <laughs> I don't know where to go from that. Somebody no, else make no. a joke. No, it is, it's, quite, it's quite difficult to make, to, to write on this topic. I don't, chapter four is about, it's called race. Yeah. But what you're saying is actually um, race is a social construct and not a genetic thing. Or is it? Or is it, yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, careful. Yes. It also yes, doesn't, it, is. <laughs> it also so. doesn't help, Adam, that your entire industry was basically founded by massive racists yeah. Yeah. for the purposes of racism. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, oh, yeah. Yeah, that is precisely right. Yeah. Yeah. That, is, that, that is my direct intellectual genesis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, but surely you're descended from all the different kinds of intellectual heritage across the world. Well, actually, family trees and, See, I made a joke family trees and academia was much more linear, much more easy to understand. <laughs> but I, I, was, I, I was an undergraduate in the Galton Laboratory, where I still have a, um, an honorary fellowship. And Galton was Darwin's cousin, and he was the founder of... Um, Racism? No. <laughs> Racism has been around for ages. Right. 
<laughs> he was the founder of genetics. Right. <laughs> so his, his experiments and his, he was a brilliant statistician. He was a brilliant scientist in many, many ways. He was also a racist and quite an unpleasant person in many regards. His scientific legacy is unquestionably important. Um, but the, the irony of, so let me, let me just deal with the question. I, I argue in the book, and I think I'm right, that as a scientific term, the value for the way we colloquially talk about race has, not, has no value for science. There is no way of breaking up people genetically using DNA that corresponds to the way we talk about people when we use terms like race. And there are many examples, I can give, well, there are, there are all the examples that I go, I go through a few in the book, and there are obvious ones, such as Jewishness is one. So in 1882 and 84, two doctors, one in uh, London, one in New York, um, Tay and Sachs, ah. separately identified mm. a condition in young Jewish boys which became known as Tay-Sachs disease. Which, if you are a Jewish person, you get tested for when you're a teenager, and then you've got to go and tell, because it's a terrible genetic disorder, and um, it's, it's, it's muscle wasting, isn't it? Uh, it's a neurological disorder which involves muscle wasting yeah. as well. It's a single mutation in a gene called HEXA, and, and it's, it's awful. It's an awful, awful condition. Um, and in, it was identified in these two Jewish families... Um, you see the emergence of recessive genetic disorders in families that have uh, that have, uh, have high degrees of consanguinity inbreeding in them anyway. But within a few years, and it became known as the Jewish disease. Now, it, at this time in history, this is the we're in we're in a period where the, the anti-Semitism is is going to crescendo in 1945, right? So it becomes but maybe again in the future. <laughs> well, <laughs> looking that way. <laughs> Um, Looking good for a resurgent, continue. <laughs> <laughs> wow, nobody laughed at that. No, <laughs> no. Reality sucks. Yeah, I'm really sorry about anyway, that. Anyway, so yeah. a couple of years later, the same disease is identified in a, in a non-Jewish family, and it gets labelled something different, huh. because it can't be the same disorder, because these guys aren't Jewish. That's brilliant. So, by, through the course of the 20th century, we identified Tay-Sachs at, e at similar proportions in all sorts of populations around the world, Cajuns, Canadians, French, at the same sort of levels that occurs within Jewish families. So it's quite clear that it isn't, whatever it is, it isn't exclusive to Jews at all. And ironically, because there are more Jewish geneticists um, than, not, than other cultural then I'm doing it again I'm... Jewish culture yes. is very interested in education that is a cultural trait of Jewish culture yeah. and therefore we end up with a lot of people who um, are highly educated and many of them go into science and some of those become geneticists thank you my pleasure uh, that was very handy thank you for getting, <laughs> for, for getting me out of that hole uh, as a result of that as exactly as you just described, Tay-Sachs now doesn't exist in Jewish populations <laughs> because of a proactive recognition that it was a disease of inbreeding and consanguinity. And so through what we might refer to as soft eugenics, mm. it has effectively been bred out of the population that it was, it was originally discovered in. Right? So, it, 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 I mean, it's a, it's a great example of how we begin to understand how inheritance patterns actually work. Actually... You know, the earliest description of inheritance patterns that are effectively genetics uh, is in the Talmud. <laughs> and it's a description in one particular uh, tract where it describes how if your, uh, if your son 
um, bleeds to death uh, on circumcision. And if the mother has a sister whose son, first two sons also did, then the second and third sons from the first woman are exempt from circumcision. Mm. So there's a very small proportion of Jewish boys who are not circumcised. And what they're describing there is, is haemophilia. Right? Yeah. So that's 3,000 years old worth of... Oh, um, yeah. 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 Wow. Wow. <laughs> we get to the point where really we're, we're running quite late, and I do want to take some <laughs> questions from the audience, but I did also promise that there was going to be some sort of discussion of sci-fi, so perhaps if you guys want to think about something like that. But just to finish us off, <laughs> I just want to... Um, uh, well, I'll start with the chat. I'll start with the question that that got sidelined by genital chat then, which I wanted to <laughs> to kick off discussion of sci-fi, which is Adam. I think this is in the book. It might just be something you've told me, or it might have been in the earlier book or something. But at some point, you've been on some radio chat show, and the the interviewer has said, "So, Adam, when will human beings be able to fly?" <laughs> <laughs> When were human beings last able to fly? Well, on aeroplanes today. <laughs> um, yeah, we did that. So it was. It, and the story was, and this is true. It was in a. It was. I. I, I do TV work, and um, I, I was asked to. Uh, I was asked to go for lunch with a um, a TV producer because they wanted to make what's known as a support program for a, a, a major TV series. It was Heroes. Do you remember Heroes? Yeah. The first season was quite good, and then it yeah. went a bit wrong. fell off a cliff, that show. Yeah, I thought the first season yeah. was excellent, actually. first season was excellent, and the second season fell off a cliff. We could do a whole, like, evening on why that happened. Yeah. yeah. And then they've just re- relaunched yeah, it, but I don't think I anyone watched it. I mean... It was basically the X-Men, right? If you didn't see yeah. Heroes, it was but basically the X-Men. it wasn't about anything, whereas X-Men is really about something. Yeah, civil X-Men. rights. Yeah. It's about racism, isn't it? Yeah, the X-Men, X-Men basically. <laughs> I mean, do you know... Do you know this, that um, in the X-Men, um, Professor X is uh, uh, based on Martin Luther King, or, like, that's the sort of concept, and um, Magneto is uh, supposed to be Malcolm X. So it's like those thoughts about how do you respond to a society that has treated you appallingly? Do you say, no, I dream that one day we will be able to live together? Or do you go, no, fuck those fuckers. Separatism, you know... Um, there's like like now that we don't have to be afraid of them anymore. Just they're never going to be kind to us. Let's just get out of here. Um, and yeah, sorry, I was just I just I just no, started talking right. about all, X-Men. All, all Marvel comics are about yeah. I mean, like well, it's particularly it, I mean, and, and also the X Men movies, which are, you know, Brian Singer is a gay Jew, and it's kind of about that same thing. I think of like, well, you know, here we are now, quite a like. You know, we have with you know maybe you feel like oh I have quite a lot of influence in the world or something, and then how do you feel about people who would have wanted to kill you at some earlier point? Anyway, I love the X Men. Carry on. It, it's almost as if like science fiction is about something else. Right. Okay. Oh yeah, I know what it was. So yeah, so the X Men is about something, but Heroes is not. Was not. It was. That's right. It was yeah. Not about anything. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. the point the point was that they were doing. They wanted to do a program on the B, on BBC Three or Four um, about the real science behind. Um, heroes, right? You know, superpowers, genetic superpowers, do they really exist? And so the opening gambit for this meal was, so tell me, when are humans going to be able to evolve to be able to fly? And I thought, oh, God, here we go. I'm going to give it my best best smiley face because it's work. 
you know, <laughs> and and went into this sort of impassioned description of how evolution works, but also that you know the real significance to human evolution is that we are a technological species, and the the energy constraints and the reasons for evolving wings are, are not something which are conceivable within our current understanding of evolution. But what we did. Uh, as our brains got bigger and the so-called cognitive revolution 50,000 years ago uh, is we, we em embraced technology in a way that we, you know, I went on and on like this. It's, it's all in the book, right? You know, I don't, I don't, I need, don't need to bore you with this kind of stuff. Um, but it was a sort of impassioned, and I was watching these two guys and, I was, and they, there was a point where they nodded at each other and they were thinking, and I, I read them as thinking, yeah, this is the guy, right? <laughs> right? And I'm into comics and I was making references to comics yeah. and I was talking about how, you know, there are blind people who can echolocate. Yes, there are. But With... not like Daredevil. Yeah, clicks like that, no. <laughs> not, not quite as good as Matt Murdock can, can do it. But nevertheless, I was saying, you know, so the, the actual answer is, well, you know, we can fly. We invented this stuff. We used our evolved brains to invent the technology so we could do all of these amazing things because humans are amazing. And they went, yes, brilliant. So you think it'll be about 200 years? <laughs> I was like, yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks, <laughs> thanks for the pizza. <laughs> yeah. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.